As we remain standing, let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please be seated? Sometimes it seems like there is nothing that people enjoy more than complaining. There's a reason why Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh is such an endearing character. We all know that person. Perhaps we are maybe a little bit that person. The one who can look at any situation, no matter how good, or take any compliment, no matter how nice, and find the downside. After all, Eeyore said, what are birthdays? Here today, gone tomorrow. We all know that guy, don't we? (laughs) Maybe have a bit of him in us. I think I spent about 25 minutes this morning before the service complaining about something. Now, perhaps the most common complaint is that life isn't fair. We say it and we complain about it because, let's face it, life isn't fair. And so we go on complaining. But it is a wearying thing, isn't it? You have wearied the Lord with your words, Malachi says. Imagine getting to the place where you have complained so much that even the Lord is like, all right, I got it, enough. The people of Malachi's time have wearied the Lord with their words. And what are their words? Life isn't fair. And since it isn't fair, they want justice. And the Lord agrees. He wants justice as well. The challenge is, what that looks like to the Lord is a lot different than what it looks like to the people. And so this morning, we're going to look at the people's complaint and how it reveals a twisted sense of justice. And then we're going to look at the Lord's response and how his justice is gracious and merciful. Let's start with the issue that the people have. What is their complaint? Well, as we said, they're, they're looking out at the world and they're saying life just isn't fair. Those who by their estimation should be the worst off seem to be doing the best. The wicked, the unjust, the corrupt, they are the ones who are prospering. While they, the people, the faithful ones, the law followers, the rule keepers, they're all struggling. Now we want to start by acknowledging the truth in their claim. It's not difficult to see how throughout basically all of human history... Those who seem most willing to do wrong end up being the most well-off. The politician who takes bribes. The corporation that lays off low-ranking employees while handing out giant bonuses to executives. The list could go on and on. 
And we see those things and we should rightly call them what they are, immoral abuses of power for one's gain at the expense of another. And so there's nothing wrong with addressing these things, nor is there anything wrong with crying out to the Lord about how the wicked seem to prosper. The scripture is filled with such instances. If you went through the book of Psalms, I bet you would lose count of the amount of times that the psalmist cries out to the Lord that the wicked prosper. And so what's the problem here? Why is the Lord wearied with their words? Is he hearing them and saying, yeah, you know what? I get it. I mean, people are just terrible. What do you want me to do about it? No. The problem is that the people are looking at the state of things and they're coming to conclusions about God himself. There's nothing wrong with asking God questions, real serious questions. Why am I sick? Why do I have cancer? Why can't I keep a job? Why can't I find a spouse that loves me? Why do people treat one another so horribly? We can ask those questions. We should ask questions like that. The problem comes that when asking them, we start assuming that God is on the wrong side of them. That God is actually in favor of evil. And that's what the people are doing. How have, you weary, how have we wearied him, they ask. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, if you were to ask that last question with a desire to seek real justice done, it would be perfectly appropriate. But that's not what the people are doing. They're accusing God. They're impugning his character. They're saying that God isn't good at all. That in fact he is evil and delights in what is evil. They look at the world and they see sin abounding. And so they conclude that not that God is indifferent to evil. As bad of a conclusion as that would be. They go even further. They say he likes it. And their sense of justice is completely twisted. Why do I say that? Well, because they really love justice when it falls on anyone else. They see sin everywhere. And so they conclude that God should act. The problem is they don't see sin in one place, in their own hearts. And yet their sin is perhaps the worst of it all. Remember where our book started, friends. The very first words of God. I have loved you. And how do the people respond? How have you loved us? You haven't loved us because if you did, our lives would look more like their lives. The rich and powerful lives. Not what they are now. If you really loved us, if you really believed in justice, you would get those sinners. You ever feel that sort of sentiment creeping into your heart sometimes? To look out at the world and think, if God really loved me, my life wouldn't be this challenging. I mean, I do all the right things. I'm nice. I work hard. I'm a good person. Not my neighbor. That guy's terrible. He cheats his employees. He lies all the time. 
but he's got the nice house and the perfect looking family. People love him. What's the deal, Lord? You ever cry out for God's justice just so long as it falls on the real sinners, not you? I'm good, they're bad. Bless me, get them. Amen. I mean, maybe we wouldn't say it explicitly, right? But it sneaks into our hearts, doesn't it? And it is sinful. And even more so if we begin to assume that God's going to bless that, that God is for evil. That God blesses that which is immoral. You see, friends, God desires justice even more than we do. And so he shows the people here that justice is not only for those whose sin is obvious, but for everyone. Because all of us have sin that need to be dealt with. And he shows that to this group by hitting them with what they really care about. Their pocketbook. Preacher's about to talk about money. How are they measuring prosperity here? What's their complaint really about? It's money. It's lives of luxury. That's what the wrongdoers have and they don't. And so the Lord turns the issue of money right around on them. If we jump down toward the end of our passage, we get to Malachi 3, verse 8. We read this. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. What's going on here? Well, the people of this time were commanded to bring in tithes and offerings. 10% of their money and their harvest was to be given to the Lord. And the people aren't doing it. They're holding back. Instead of bringing the first fruits of their labor, as we read about in chapter 1, they are bringing what they deem they can part with. And so the Lord points out to these folks who have been complaining about all them awful sinners out there, all those sinners who are prospering, that they haven't exactly been following his will and his ways either. It's the equivalent of the line worker who complains about the bonus the CEO just got while he's cheating his friend in their poker game. It's just as worthy of God's judgment. The presenting sin here is that they are not bringing in the full tithe and offerings. But there's something, something even worse going on under the surface. And it's connected to that problem we just talked about at the beginning. Why is it that they're holding back? Why wouldn't they follow God's teaching on money? Why wouldn't they bring in the full tithe? It's because deep down, they don't trust God. They've questioned his love for them. They've questioned his goodness and his character. And that defect of the heart is being played out in that they're holding back. They're not giving to the Lord what is actually his. They're robbing him. Now, this is a bit of a sidebar, but I want to be clear about something here. The purpose of the tithe is not about making sure the temple had the money for what it needs to do. That is a piece of it. It is not the whole thing. 
And nowhere in the New Testament are we called to give 10%. We could summarize the teaching on giving in the New Testament as giving joyfully, willingly, and sacrificially. No number is actually listed in the New Testament. Now, before we start celebrating that we don't have to give 10%, let's hear what we're actually hearing here. For some people, joyful, willing, sacrificial giving is 10%. And for many of us, that's a floor that we start with. For some, it'll be 1%. For some, it'll be 75%. There are people out there, people that I know, that have such enormous sums of money, they could hand over 50% of what they have, and they wouldn't even notice it. And then there's other people that I know, that if they gave 1% of 1% of what they have, it would be a massive sacrifice. The point is not the percentage. The point is that in giving, we acknowledge that all we have been given is the Lord's. He has given it to us, and so we give it back to him in joyful thanksgiving. It is an act of worship. An act of worship that teaches us to trust our God for our provision, for all that is good. It teaches us to have more confidence in our God than in our stock market or our pension plan. So in our passage today, the Lord is addressing the surface action here. But the greater sin, the sin behind the sin, we could say, is the sin of the heart that looks at God and says, you are not worthy of my trust. And so I'm going to hold back. That is sin, and it deserves God's justice just as much as cheating your neighbor does. And so the Lord is looking upon his people and he's asking them, do you trust me? Do you believe he has the best for you? That he wants the best for you? Do you believe he can provide for you in exactly the way you need it? St. Aidan's, do you trust God? Do you trust him with your future? Do you trust him with your money? Do you trust him with your family? Do you trust God? The Lord challenges his people. Put me to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Hear that word. No more need. Not no more want. No more need. Sometimes that blessing will look like material wealth. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes it'll look like greater relationships with people, genuine friendships and community and belonging, because frankly, most of us need that more than money at this point. Sometimes it looks like a peace and a foundation that surpasses all understanding. Always it will come from the Lord when we follow him, when we trust him. Do you trust him? 
And he shows just how trustworthy he is and how he executes justice. And it's rooted in his very nature, in his unchanging grace and mercy. The people ask, where is the God of justice? And he responds, I'm here and I'm moving. The Lord tells them he is sending his messenger to prepare his way. Once that occurs, the Lord will come and he will appear suddenly. Now we who live after the first advent of Christ, when we hear the messenger of the Lord, we know it's John the Baptist. As the Gospels tell us, John was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The messenger comes to prepare the people to repent, to confess and turn to the Lord who will dispense perfect justice. It is the task the church is left with today. To prepare the way of the Lord for his second advent. To call a people back to him. A wayward people. To confess and return to their God. You want justice, God says? Justice is coming. And it is coming in the form of Jesus. The Lord will appear and when he does, Malachi asks, who can stand? The answer is no one. For all fall short of the glory of God. All have sin that deserves justice. And so God comes. The Lord comes and he comes with fire and with water. He comes to purify and to wash away. Now heard in a certain light, that could sound pretty terrifying. But because it is Christ who comes, There is great grace in these words. For he washes with the fuller's soap. He washes away all that stains us. His fire is a refiner's fire. It burns away that which is impure. It does not consume. It purifies. The Lord comes with cleansing water and refining fire, and he comes for his people. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The Lord comes for his people to take away all that keep them from him. For it is not his heart to destroy. It is not his heart to consume, but to restore. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That is the heart of God. The promise he has made to his people is to be their God, to live and to dwell with them. And his promise never changes. Notice that when the Lord speaks of his coming, he refers to the messenger of the covenant. Now, there is some debate in scholarly circles as to who exactly is in view here. 
but I cannot see it as anyone other than Jesus. For it is Christ who comes with the gospel of a better covenant, one made with his blood poured out for the sins of the world, all so that our sin, that which makes us impure, could be washed away and burned away. By the waters of baptism and the fire of the Holy Spirit, we might be made his. So that our covenant with God, our relationship with God might be restored. That is why God's grace is so, so merciful. That is why his justice is so gracious. Because the justice that we deserved, it fell upon Christ himself first. So that his blood could be poured out for us. He took the blame and bore the wrath that we deserved. All so that our relationship with the Father could be restored. That we could be the children of a better covenant. The Lord came and sin is atoned for. Grace abounds. That is what the justice and grace of God purchased for us. Now we can think of justice, and it can be a scary thing. I wonder what we first thought when I said, he comes with fire and water. <laughs> he comes with justice. It can sound terrifying. And make no mistake, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And for those who are outside of Christ, it will not be a joyful occasion. But his judgment is necessary, and his grace is on offer. And it is his grace we need. We don't always recognize it as such. But it is there. I was reminded of this in perhaps the most adorable way possible this week. Many of you know I have had a house full of sick children for the past couple weeks. One of the saddest yet most adorable things on the planet is a toddler with a cold. There they are, no idea what's going on, and their nose is running like a fountain. And there you are, tissue in hand. The instrument of judgment has come. And they see it. If they're anything like my daughter, they turn and they run for the hills with everything in them. Because they don't know what's happening. They just know that there's daddy with the tissue and that thing. I don't know what it is, but that doesn't feel good. And so off they go. Thankfully for slow people like me, toddlers are pretty slow, and so you catch them. And you take them up in, in your arms. And they're wiggling because they don't want it, but then you wipe away. You wipe their nose. And that instrument of justice is suddenly an instrument of grace because they're like, wow, that was terrifying, but man, I feel so much better. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's got an amen from the congregation. There you go. Thank you, Audrey. What looked at first like judgment, like something that is scary, turns out 
to be the greatest blessing we could ever have. And the child receives it and then they curl themselves up in your arms and they rest on your shoulder. You that had scared them. Now they couldn't imagine being apart. Seems like quite the pivot, I know, but that's what the water and fire can look like sometimes. We see it coming, and like a toddler, we want to run away because it seems scary. And then it happens. The Lord catches us, and he washes away all that stained us, and he burns away all that made us impure. He refines us. And what was uncomfortable or even scary becomes great blessing. And we couldn't imagine being apart from him. We find our rest in him. What is it that we need for the Lord to take from us? What do we need to trust him with? Maybe it is our money. Maybe we have been robbing him. Maybe it's our family. Maybe we don't really trust him with the lives of our children. Maybe it's COVID. We're all kind of tired of it. Maybe it's just the way the world is going. We're all a little afraid of it. What are you complaining about? other than the preacher won't stop talking. (laughs) The judgment of the Lord came when Christ went to the cross for us. And it will come again when he returns. In the meantime, hear the call of Christ to repent and turn back to him. To lay down all that holds you from him. For he comes with water to make you clean. And he comes with fire to make you pure. His grace abounds to make you his. Return to him and he will return to you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do praise you that you came for us. We praise you that by Jesus we are made yours. We pray, Lord, that you would wash away and burn away all that keeps us from you. That you would help us not to run from you, but toward you. That we might rest upon your shoulder, be blessed by your grace, and be made yours now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.